you Don, and Edwina. And Eddie. Recording the Pass up over with it. Good to be sharing God's Word with you again this morning. And if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And we're reading verse 9 to 15 as we continue our look at the Lord's Prayer this morning. Matthew chapter 6 verse 9. Read with me. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if, you, if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's uh, let's. Go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that we can trust each and every word in your word this morning and that we can have full reliance upon it for our own lives. Father, we just thank you that you've preserved it so faithfully and that we have it to read this morning. Lord, I pray for those who don't know your word. I pray for those this morning who have not discovered the wonderful truths within it. And I pray that it will... Uh, do what you've called it to do in their lives as they hear it from time to time. Father, help us to be the carriers of this word in our lives, not just here in church, but, Lord, out in this world that need that light so much. We thank you once again for this time. I pray to be honouring to you this morning that it would glorify you and lift up the name of our Saviour, Jesus, in this place this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. We have covered the first two verses of this uh, of what they call the Lord's Prayer. And if you think about it, it's not even his prayer. Okay? Because we often call this the Lord's Prayer as if, he, as if he prayed it. But this was a teaching exercise that he gave. People had asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, well, when you pray, pray like this. A closer um, uh, passage about the Lord's Prayer would be the passage in John, where Jesus actually, you hear the words that he prays on behalf of his disciples and he's praying with the Father. So this is... It is a Lord's Prayer, and we've learnt it as such, and it's been given that name, and we've probably heard it, who knows, thousands upon thousands of times in our lives. But I pray this morning that as I look at one verse, right, which is verse 11, that we'll gain some, some new insight and the Lord will help us to understand it in a deeper way. But I want to first recap the first two verses, which is, After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, we looked at last week these first two verses in the context of what are they, what do they actually mean? Uh, disregard those uh, low-flying planes that are coming through at the moment. We don't know what they're doing. Um, it teaches us, these first two verses, how we are to approach God when we come to him in prayer. When we want to speak with God, these first two verses teach us, well, who is it that you're speaking to? And who are you in relation to him? And how are you to understand 
and appreciate who he is before we begin our request, which we'll begin looking at this morning. So the first thing it does, it recognises, it forces us, in a sense, to recognise our spiritual relationship with God. And it forces us to understand that we are part of a family that we've been adopted into. It reminds us that we are his children before him and that he is our father. But we, we questioned last week about, is everyone a child of God? Well, scriptures would probably teach no. That in a, in a, in a general sense, we are his, his children from the point of view that God created all, all of mankind. So from, from that point of view, we are. From the point of view that we are humans and that God created us in his image, yes, we are his children because God created first Adam and Eve. But from the specific sense of being his children, the answer is no. Because the Bible teaches, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. The Bible teaches there is a special class of person. There is a special group of individuals in this world that can be specifically designated the term sons or children of God. And we find this in Romans chapter 8, verse 14 to 17. And we'll find out how these people became children. Look what it says here in verse 14. Romans chapter 8, verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. All right. So as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. All right, so let's, in a nutshell, this passage tells us that if you've received by faith salvation, at that point you receive the Spirit of God. And you still have your spirit, because you notice it says that at the spirit itself in verse 16 bears witness with our spirit. There's a connection that takes place. And the spirit of God, once it invades our lives, once it actually comes into us okay, and begins to live in me, it gives life to my spirit, which was dead before. It connects me back to God. You see, because man um, has a spirit, and that spirit... It was the part of man that was able to communicate with God, that maintained that relationship. Okay? But when Adam and Eve sinned, that relationship was broken. The Bible says our spirits became dead, useless. We no longer could communicate with God. Oh, yeah, they could pray, they could do all these things, but that connection, that relationship that existed was broken and had to be restored in a special way. How did God do it? Well, God sent his son onto this earth, to live in our place in a sense, to do the right things that we could never do. He died on the cross, he rose again from the grave, conquering death, and then he sent the Spirit of God. So everyone who accepts Christ as Saviour and believes on him now is given new life. We say we're born again. The term born again is something that was done to us by God. When the Spirit came into our lives, he gave us new life. He actually reconnected. It's like, it's like reconnecting, you know, when you pull a plug out of an um, electrical appliance from out of your wall, the appliance dies. It doesn't work anymore. God, God's spirit, in a sense, 
plugged us back in to a relationship with God where we can actually live and we have new life. So that's what the Spirit did. But it teaches us something even deeper because at that point, it says that we have received the spirit of adoption. So we've been adopted. We were at one stage, we're not part of God's family. But when that occurred, the Bible says, the Spirit came into our lives. We became one of His by adoption. Now, the Bible says that we can cry, Abba, Father. And the term Abba is like a bit like Dad. It's, a, it's, it, it's actually a... It's actually a very endearing term, which means we're on a first-name basis here. What we didn't have before. You know how everyone believes in, or most people in this world believe in God, or a God? And, and they've got different names for him, but they all believe in a sense that we're all praying to the same God. Well, there's no. First of all, there's not, we're not praying all to the same God. But in a sense, we believe in God, but now we see God in a totally different way. Because the, un- because the unbeliever, the person, who, the person who actually says they believe in God, and I know many of these types of people, can actually believe in a God, can actually believe in God, but aren't connected to him, have no direct relationship to him. But then there are those who believe in God, but then have a special relationship with him in terms of he's their father, their spiritual father in heaven. So the amazing thing is, if you look at verse 17, that the Bible says that we are heirs of God. Heirs, which is an amazing thing. Heirs. What's an heir? An heir is someone who inherits someone else's goods, someone else's property. You become owner of those things. And look what it says here, that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So Jesus started something that we are partaking in. And that, that is the blessings of God. But there's a caveat here. Notice it says something. If so be that we suffer with him. If so be that we suffer with him. Which means not everyone who claims to know Christ, not everyone who claims to be born again, not everyone who says Jesus is Lord or, uh, or that they believe in God is actually a child of God. This is one of the things that will testify to you that you are indeed a child of God. The first is the spirit that speaks within you and says you are a child of God. It will speak to you internally. You know within your heart of hearts that you are saved. The other one that testifies that you're a child of God is externally that while we live in this world, we suffer. And Jesus is basically saying here that if you don't suffer, you need to question something. There needs to be a question that's raised in your mind. If I don't suffer for the Lord at all, how's my, what's my relationship with him like? Is there a relationship there? Because it says that, yes, you are a joint heir, but only if you suffer for him. Now, suffering... Suffering doesn't mean that we have to earn this thing. Suffering is a result of that relationship with him. So we need, to, we need to be very careful about, do we have that relationship with him or not? One cannot claim to be a child of God and not suffer in this world at all. Because we live in a, in a hostile environment, you see. 
How can someone who lives in enemy territory never suffer when they identify themselves as belonging to a different camp? That's basically where we're at. We live in a hostile environment that's opposed to the things of God. So if we never suffer, what are we saying about ourselves? Are we playing according to their rules or are we playing according to God's rules? Being a child of God, scripturally, will cost you in this world, will cost you in your life. One way or the other, it will cost you. This statement is completely true and it can't be denied. We can't live our lives exactly as the world does and be fully joined with the world without some sort of conflict taking place. And Jesus says it again in John chapter 16, verse 33. No need to turn with me. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You shall have tribulation. Not you might, you shall. So if you're a child of God this morning, if you identify yourself with Christ, you shall have tribulation. If you don't have tribulation, then the odds are that you might not be his child. You may not be his disciple. You may have chosen to go to sleep in this world rather than be active for him. So, thus, our relationship with God can be witnessed by two things from that passage. One is the Spirit of God witnessing directly to us, and the other is that we suffer for him because of what we believe. And not just suffer, I'm not talking about suffering in terms of physical complaints. I'm not talking about suffering if you have an accident in your car or those sorts of things, because the whole world suffers in that way. The type of suffering I'm talking about is that when you proclaim his name and you speak and live his truth, then it, it grates the world, it makes them uneasy, and they will naturally oppose what you do. They won't be comfortable living around you and I. Because if we speak the truth, it convicts. It makes people feel uneasy. Your first responsibility in your life is to verify that you are a child of God. That is your first and most important thing you could do for yourself and for God. Because if you don't know you're a child of God, then no amount of good deeds, going to church, reading your Bible, praying or whatever else it is. Because I know a lot of nice people out there that pray, read Bibles and do all, all types of things, that go out and spend all their time helping the poor. None of that actually matters. Because in the end, the Bible says the works of God that he wants you to do is to do what? Is to believe in Jesus Christ and then all the works follow. Not the works trying to prove yourself to God and then expecting God to actually judge you on your merits. It's got nothing to do with our merits. It's got everything to do with us understanding that we have no merit. That everything that we have is given to us as a gift, including our salvation. And if you are indeed a child of God, you're not the child of any father. You're not the child of someone, of a father like it's in this world that has limitations to him and that is still, still has the flesh that they have to contend with. Now, we have a father who rules in heaven and whose name is holy, whose name is holy. Therefore, we had to treat him with the utmost of honour and respect 
greater respect we are to have for him and greater honour and loyalty and devotion and love than anyone else in this world. Not earthly fathers, not mothers, not anyone else. We are to devote ourselves to him in such a way that all of these other people in this world, including me, who we always have to put as number one, pales into insignificance. That's how much we should love him, honour him and respect him. Our life's purpose on this earth is to glorify him. Our life's purpose. Why were you created? You were created to glorify him. You were created with everything you are and everything you have to give him the glory. Why? Because he deserves it. Because everything you have, everything you are, can, can actually be pointed straight back to him. Anything that's good in you this morning is something that is planted in you there from the beginning. There is nothing we have to glory within ourselves. Not one thing. But you know something? If I do live a good life in this world, I can glorify him because of what he's done. That's true for our salvation, for the things he gives us in this world, for everything we have, everything we are, everything we hope to be. Our goal in this life is to glorify and honour him. Our life's purpose is to have him respected is to see our Father respected everywhere the same way we are to respect him. The problem is our Christians often fall short in that area themselves. They don't respect and honour God themselves. So how on earth can the people around them honour God? Our job is to spread abroad his fame. Is to, is to use this and to use these and to use our feet to let everyone know how wonderful he is, to make him famous. So when, when people speak about him, when people think about him, they understand how glorious and wonderful he is because we believe it within our hearts that he is that. We are to teach his precepts in this world. We are to go out, the Bible says, and make disciples of every nation, teaching them to follow everything that he has taught us at the risk of losing their own lives. So we are to remind ourselves that we have a glorious Father. But we should also remember that our Father is a magnificent King. A magnificent King who rules over a kingdom that has broken into this dark world. You see, the Bible says the God of this world is the devil. That he has had dominion over this place for a very long time. And when Jesus defeated him on that cross and rose again on the third day, that he defeated Satan. And God's kingdom invaded this world in a way that it would never be the same again. We are citizens of that kingdom. We are to do everything in our power to promote that kingdom. To see its advance, to see its growth in a way that glorifies God and continues to overcome the darkness in this world. We are the sons and daughters of this king, and we are citizens of his kingdom. Thus, when we pray, our concern should be that whatever we pray for, whatever it is that comes into our mind that we want to bring before him, that it's his will that's first done, that it's his kingdom that comes first, that it's him that is the priority in our prayer. He should be the priority in our prayers, not us. He should be the one. 
We want to glorify him in every possible way. And that should be the focus of our prayers. Everything in our prayers should be in context of him being glorified. It doesn't matter what you pray. Whether you pray for someone to be healed, whether you pray for a job, whether you pray to, for a baby, for the health of, of a baby, why do we pray those things? We don't pray for those things just in and of themselves. Though we would like those things, the Bible says that we pray all those things in order for him to be glorified through them. And if that's the basis, the foundation of our prayers, then he will receive the glory and he will glorify himself and we will rejoice because our Father's being honoured and glorified. Our desires, our will, our plans, our focus should always be subject to what's best, not for us, but for him. What's best for his kingdom? So much so that our prayer should be permeated with an immense love and desire for this kingdom. You follow a footy team? You like your footy team? Then this, your footy team, the, the, the passion you have for your football team should pale into insignificance. Or anything else you do in life should pale into insignificance for the love and the passion that you have for his kingdom. Nothing should even come close. His kingdom should be first in my life. I want to see his kingdom advance. Because I'm part of it. That's the thing that I identify myself with first. You see, we identify ourselves with so many things in life. You know, we're Australians and today we're celebrating Australia Day. And we sing, advance Australia fair, don't we? We want Australia to advance. We want it to progress. We live in this country and we want to see it grow. We want to see justice done in this country. We want to see good things occurring. Correct. Good thing. But we should, our first song should be advance the kingdom of God. The first song in our lives. Our desire for his kingdom should be so strong should be so strong that our desire should be that his kingdom will invade this world in a way that will change it completely around us. And we are the conduits of that change. We should, we should pray with such fervour that we want to see Jesus sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, ruling this world. Do you desire that this morning? It should be our first love to see him again, to see him take his rightful place as king in this world, with Satan totally obliterated and taken out of the way. That should be our desire. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you ready for it? Are you ready to pray in that way? Because if you begin to pray in that way, I will guarantee you, you will see things that you never thought possible. Having read the first two verses, are your prayers commenced with the right motive and focus? Those first two verses tell us how to approach God and what our motive should be in our prayers. Do you pray in that way? Our prayers should always and in every way begin with a focus of his greatness and his kingdom. So now we've covered the first two verses, right? We've got ourselves in the right frame of mind. We know who we've come before. We know the motive through which we, we should be praying. Now we go to the requests. And it says here in verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. 
Give us this day. So knowing we serve this great king and we have a father who loves us, we come to him and say, Father, give us this day the bread we need for today. Let's look at some incredible things in this little verse. Give. Give. I'm totally dependent on him for everything. I am so dependent upon him. I'm like a baby who can't look after itself, who needs God in every possible way, for everything, even a piece of bread. Last time I checked, you can buy a loaf of bread for a couple of dollars, can't you? Seems pretty cheap compared to what people get, get paid in our society. And if I think superficially, I can come to the conclusion that I get my own bread. I earn money, I work, and I buy my bread. Well, that's thinking about it fairly superficially. Because the reality of the whole thing is that God gave me the capacity to work. If God didn't say, Frank, I'm going to allow you to be able to work, I wouldn't be able to work. And I wouldn't be eating bread as a result of that work. God gave me the skills, the abilities, the opportunities that I have in order to be able to work. So who's, at the end of the day, giving me the bread? He is. The funny thing is as well, that's not just me that he gave the ability to. He gave my employer, the person who employs me, the ability to be able to employ me as well. It's not just me. I can't work for, for, for nobody. I have to work for somebody, right? Apart from those guys who, who do work for themselves. But God had to give my employer the ability to be able to employ me. He needs to have certain things running the right way in order for him to be able to pay me, which then allows me to buy bread. But something else. God had to give the baker the ability to be able to bake that bread. In every step of that, of that cog that goes around. The employer, the employee, the person who I then go and buy things from as a result of me being able to enjoy God also gave the government. God also gave, because the Bible teaches that he gave us the government. He, he actually endorses the government. So if there's no government, there's anarchy, and I can't buy bread. If there's no monetary system, I can't buy bread. God has all that worked out. So when we say that we bought the bread, well, that's a bit of a... That's not true. Because so many things have to be right in order for me to buy bread and to be able to eat it. The words I pray give, or the word I pray give, I acknowledge, acknowledges that I am utterly dependent upon him. I am vulnerable in so many ways. And I have weaknesses that I can't count. There are plenty of ways for me to die. Plenty. You know, if the air runs out, if I can't breathe for a couple of minutes... I'm not here anymore. Just think of that. If the air runs out for a couple of minutes, I'm not here anymore. If my heart stops beating, I'm not here anymore. If my brain ceases to function, I'm not here anymore. If one of my vital organs decides to, um, to give way and not work, the chances are I'm not going to be here anymore. There are so many things that have to be just right. And the Bible also teaches that God sustains the universe with the word of his power. That's Jesus who sustains the universe. Which means every atom... Every interaction, every chemical interaction, every molecule, every 
For those of you who are into physics, quarks and leptons and muons and all those other little funny little, uh, named uh, uh, particles are held together by God. And as much as the scientists say, they keep smashing these things together and saying, look what we found, and look what we found. Wow, look at that. We even predicted one of these things was going to come out. You know the funny thing is? God knew it a long time ago. God knew all those things a long time ago because he's the one who put them, not just put them together, he's the one who's holding it all together too. If God at any stage blinks, the whole universe will dissolve because he's holding it all together. Which is why I know God is consistent. He never, he never fails. So when I say that, Father, give, what I'm saying is that I need everything to come from you. I am utterly dependent. Because if you say no, I don't get. The air that I breathe, the beating of my heart, my brain, whatever else it is, God is in control. Everything in our lives is given to us by a Heavenly Father. God gives you absolutely everything in your life. He gives you every experience you have, which you count. He's allowed you to have. Every skill, every ability, every thought, every breath, every heartbeat comes from the hand of a loving Father who loves not just us, but even loves the ones who hate him and rebel against him, which tells us a lot about his, his patience as well. In every way, during each and every day, I am utterly dependent upon him. As a baby is dependent upon its parents to live for everything, so we must realise in our lives that we need him for everything in our lives. That's why the, the fellow that Jesus gave a parable about who was a wealthy man and built barns to store all his stuff, thinking, oh, look at that. You know, I've, I've now got riches and I'm, I'm set for the rest of my life. The Bible says, you fool. Because today your soul will be required of you. And who are you going to leave all these things to anyway? So I am totally dependent upon God, which teaches me something else, that God is sufficient for all of my needs. He is sufficient for all of my needs. Seeing that, we have a great, powerful God and we are so dependent and so needy for him. Isn't it the greatest joy and peace when you can put your full trust in him? The greatest peace a person can know is to understand that very point, that I am needy and he can provide me with everything. At that point, if you reach that point of understanding... You will have and can have the greatest peace in your life. This is a story of the saints. It's the saints and the great heroes that we read about in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the New Testament. It's people who have actually understood that they are dependent on him, that they need him, and also that he can supply every need for them. So when God came to them and spoke to them and said, I want you to leave everything for me and I want you to go and do something great for me. They said, okay, I'll go. And God was able to use them in a way that glorified himself. And did he sustain them? Of course he did. 
He sustained them every time. Did they lose their lives? Yes, they did. Most of them did. They lost their lives for him. Why? They trusted him. And he provided everything that they needed to glorify himself. And even when they died, he still glorified himself through it. And do they have their reward? Praise God, they have their reward. They had their reward during their life and in heaven. Which makes everything in this world look really nothing. God is sufficient for all of my needs. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. That's peace. When you acknowledge the Lord in everything you do, he will direct your paths. And the Bible says that it is, in terms that we don't generally use these days, health to your navel and marrow to your bones, which means you will be healthy. And that's how it says, give us. Give us. My prayer is not focused on me. The first two verses of the prayer focuses on him alone. Now we're actually speaking on behalf of not just us, but ourselves, but each, but the whole of us together. Interesting, isn't it? Most of our prayers are generally focused on ourselves. When you pray alone, how do you pray? Do you pray generally, Lord, give us this or give us that? Or is it, Lord, I need this? I, 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 I. Prayer should once again have its emphasis on the benefit of everyone in the family of God. I'm going to labour on this point a little bit because I want you to understand something very serious here. That our prayer should be focused on ourselves. Our prayers aren't for us. Surprising? They're not for you and me. It's not just about me, the prayer. Although you may need certain things, once again, it's always got to be in context of something else. In the context of his kingdom. In the context of the benefit of others as well. That means I can't just go around requesting things that I want. It means that I'm not the sole seeker of the prayer. It acknowledges that I, as an individual in God's kingdom and part of God's family, am linked together with other people around me. I'm linked to them in a way that, that we sometimes struggle to comprehend. When we talk about the family of God and we talk about church, oftentimes people, when people come to church and I speak to them about the importance of coming to church, the importance of being connected to the family, the importance of fellowship one with another, they look at me a little bit strange and they say, oh, I think you're overdoing it. No, I'm not overdoing it. I'm not overdoing it because the minute you begin to, to downgrade the importance of the church and your role within it, what you're saying is, God, I don't really care about your family very much. I can do it out here alone. Just you and me, God. We can do it. Just you and me. And God says, hang on a second. Oh, oh, oh. I didn't create you to be alone. I'm not working with you by yourself. You are connected with the rest of the family here. Don't pretend as if you, you have somehow 
doing it on your own merit or your own thing. We, whatever we do, has to be for the benefit of the whole family, not just for, for we might say, oh, I'm doing it for you, God. But how can you be doing it for God if you're not doing it for everyone else as well? When you read the, as we talk, as I mentioned before, when you read the prayer of the Lord and the Gospel of John, you will notice that he doesn't pray for himself alone or for his benefit. But if he asks something of his father, it's in order to be able to complete the work set before him. So first of all, for his glory. So he says, Father, I need this or, or thank you for this or glorify me so you can be glorified as well. And Father, when he prays for his disciples, he said, you know, I want to be with them. I pray that they are one as we are one. Why? Because he wants, first of all, in context, to glorify God. And the second thing of all he's praying for is the benefit of his brethren now. Listen, listen to Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou have given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Who's his focus on here? His father. Father, all the ones you've given me, I've given them what you've told me to I've told them what you've told me to what you've told me to tell them, and they've accepted it, Lord. Now I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for the ones that you've actually given me because you've told me not to lose any of them, and I haven't lost one of those because he doesn't lose anything. Jesus isn't like the, the, you know, the, the, the pastor with the 99 sheep and he loses one. Jesus doesn't lose any. There's not one that he loses. There is not one sheep that he doesn't have his eye on at every possible time. He doesn't lose one. So he prays for them in order that God might be glorified. Always in that context, understand that. So when he prays, he doesn't pray for his own benefit. He prays for the glory of God and the, the growth of his brethren. So instead of focusing our prayers on ourselves, with us at the centre of our prayers, seek to be a blessing to others. Look at yourself when you pray in the context that you are connected with a family of believers. And when you pray, do everything for the glory of God. Every prayer that you are to pray should be in that context, that God might be glorified through the answer to that prayer. Now, the Bible says that it says our Father. Notice how it says our Father, and then it says give us. Well, Jesus is continuing the same thought. It started as a group, and it's continuing in that way. The problem with many Christians is an excessive amount of self-attention or emphasis. We often want the world to revolve around us. We want, when we pray sometimes, we're praying for someone, something else, but in the context that we're, that's going to benefit us, which is wrong. 
Look, I know what happens when you spend too much time thinking about yourself and what you don't have or have, about what you deserve, about what you want, about what you say, what you do, what you think, how you act, about how you've been wronged, about how you're feeling. You see, all these things generate one thing. That's conflict within yourself. Because your focus is... is the Bible doesn't teach us to focus on ourselves. It doesn't. It actually teaches that, that our vision and that our eyes should be in heaven and then it should be focused out there. God already gave you the ability to, to live a holy life. But if you spend too much time gazing at your own navel, you aren't going to find anything good. And the more, thing you, you, the, more, the more you look, the more you're going to be discouraged in your life. There's an epidemic in our culture because we've been indoctrinated with this and programmed with this from an early age in our society. And it's simply this, that it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about my career and my potential and my future and my goals and my desires, my rights, my rights, my rights, my rights. So people are conflicting and fighting and doing all these things because it's all about me. 99% 99% of conflicts in our society is because people are selfish. Most marriage breakdowns are because of selfishness. Most conflicts we see in our society, whether and it's in the church and out of the church, are because of selfishness. It's because people aren't willing to bow down and put someone else first. I have to fight for my rights. So that's reflected in the way people pray. They pray by themselves, for themselves, about themselves. Not understanding that prayer is about God, to God, for God, for the betterment and his his glory. It makes a miserable life when you spend your time thinking about yourself. If we get our minds off ourselves for long enough, we would see some relief. And the Bible says the tyranny of of this flesh that still exists. And the flesh is never satisfied. You know something's funny about Australians? Because it is Australia Day. We are one of the richest countries in the world. Per capita, we are one of the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest people on this planet. Huh? Per capita, we have more wealth per individual than, than almost the other, all the other countries, apart from some of these oil-rich uh, countries. You know something? Are Australians happy? I'll guarantee Australians aren't happy. They're not happy. In fact, they've done, they've done a number... If you look at, look at the, uh, the internet and type in unhappy Australians, yeah, you'll find a lot of, a lot of internet uh, and uh, surveys and things. They show people unhappy. How can that be? How that is, is because people are focused on me. Yeah. And when I don't get what I want, I may have the 99 things that are going right for me, but when that one thing doesn't go right, what is it? What happens to the 99 things? You forget about them. And you focus on the one that you don't have. And that's the story of people's lives. A life spent thinking about yourself, praying about yourself, is a life truly wasted. In contrast, the model prayer focuses on God as the provider and sees us as part of his family in a greater whole. We ask things so that it may be of benefit to others and glorifying to him. This is the reason we have church. 
This is why God deems it so important to get together to worship and fellowship. Because it could very well be, it could be, but when God gave you something, when God gave you an answer to your prayer, when God gives you a gift, it might not even be for you. Ever thought of that? When God gave you something, it may not have been for you to spend upon yourself. It may have been for the benefit of other people around you. Is that, a, is that a, a wild idea? It's pretty wild, isn't it? I pray for something, God gives it to me, and then I'll, what, what, what do you mean? I, I can't keep it for myself? Maybe not. Maybe God wants you to bless others with that very thing that he gave you. Maybe the very thing that he gave you wasn't meant for you in the first place. It was meant so you can bless the person next to you. That's a problem that the Corinthians had. The Corinthians, when they, were, when they were praying in their tongues, singing in tongues and doing all this stuff, and Paul says, oh, whoa, 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 what are you doing? This is not about you. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, just so we understand this in context, because they were receiving gifts from God, these Corinthians, but they were using it for themselves. And Paul says, you've missed, you've missed the whole point completely. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel sorry, the edifying to the edifying of the church. That's what they should be seeking. You're zealous of gifts? Then seek to edify the church. 13. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. Why, Paul? For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Else... When thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say Amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. Who's the focus on? The other, not you. The other person's meant to be getting the benefit of whatever it is God's given you, whether it's praying in tongues, whether it's being a teacher, whether it's being a pastor, a deacon, whatever gifts God's given you and abilities God's given you, it's meant to be for the edification of others. Who is my tongues meant to, meant to benefit? Others, not me. And any skill and ability God's given me, Needs is meant to be used to, for the benefit of others, not on me. A doctor does not go and do six or seven years, how many years they do, of learning how to do surgery so they can what? Operate on themselves when they get, uh, when they get injured. A doctor learns those skills for the betterment of, betterment of others, and for the benefit of others. God wants us to do the same. With every skill that he's given us, every ability he's given us, he wants us to impart those, to teach others the same, to help them. Because you know something? What God's given me, you may not have. But what God's given you, I might not have. So guess what? I need you as much as you need me. God may have given me the ability to be able to talk behind this pulpit, but you know something? There are things in my character 
which need to be helped. And there are skills and gifts and talents and abilities that you have that I need as much as you need me. So never think that when you are saved, when you're a child of God, that God doesn't, hasn't given you something that's useful, that you are somehow there on your own, that you don't, you don't need or the church doesn't need you. That's, that's the devil talking. The church needs you and you need the church. And that's why God asks us to meet together. Do you remember the passage in Proverbs that, where it says, you know, that, that it's health to your, your navel and marrow to your bones? Remember that passage? Well, the next two verses say, Honour the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. It's not meant for you, but you get the benefit of it as well. You were not created to be the sole recipient of his gifts. No, you were created by him to be the conduit, the channel of God's blessings to this world. That's what we are. Think of ourselves as, a, as a, some sort of a conduit or a channel. Where God decides to bless this world, he does it through us. So whatever he blesses us with, he's blessing everyone else with. It wasn't meant to be when God allows his goodness to flow and grace to flow into our lives, it wasn't meant to be a wall that it hits. It was meant to be an opportunity to actually share it with others as well. We weren't created to be a storehouse. We were created to be a channel of blessing, to bless others. And that's why Jesus says, give and it shall be given unto you. He's not talking about money here. He's talking about whether you preach, whether you serve, whatever you do, give. Give to other people around you. Do it heartily. Because it says here, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over. Shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure ye meet, that ye meet, with all it shall be measured, measured to you again. Giving to God, giving to people around you, will bless you automatically, the Bible says. You don't need to worry about it. And the more you give, the more you'll be blessed. In fact, giving is a test of our faith in him. The amount you give is an example of how much you trust in him. If you don't give... If you don't spend your time serving others, if you don't spend your time giving, if you don't spend your time learning in order to be able to bless other people, if you don't spend your time using your gifts, using your time, using your abilities to be able to bless other people, then you lack faith in God. Because what you're saying is, God, I can't give this thing away. I can't trust if I give this thing away that you can't continue to bless me. I've got more important things to do with my time, Lord. I've got more important things to do with my resources and assets than to give them to you. What are you saying about God? It reveals whether you trust him or not. How much you give reveals whether you trust him or not. And once again, I'm not talking about... I'm not Benny Hinn up here. Telling you to give, to give money to the church, and you're going to get back tenfold in the next week. I'm telling you to give to God in every way in your life, every way, every day, whether it's spiritual, material, whatever it is. 
God has called you to give and to be cheerful in that giving. So regardless of my circumstances, when I've been giving something by the Lord or through the Lord, whether material or spiritual, I have an obligation to share that thing to help other people around me. Remember that as we pray. This also teaches us where it says this day, give us this day, the immediacy of God. It expresses to me the nearness of God at every moment, at every day, in every day, in every way. Since the Lord Jesus says only to pray for the bread that you have need of today, he doesn't say, look, Lord, give us, uh, give us me enough bread for a whole month so I don't have to worry about praying coming to you again. I won't bother you. I don't want to bother you too much. God isn't wearied by our prayers. God isn't wearied by our conversations with him. He wants you to come every day. And it's available to He loves to give every day. You can't wear down God. And there is not a day. In order for Jesus to pray, give us this day, there is not a day when he won't hear you. There is not a day when he turns, when he's, he shut his ears. He listens to you each and every day and he's available to you each and every moment. Hudson Taylor once wrote, and he had complete trust in God's faithfulness. In his journal he wrote, Our Heavenly Father is a very experienced one. Very experienced. He knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustains three, he sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. He knew exactly what they needed. And he says at that stage, we do not expect he will send three million missionaries to China. But if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. Depend on it. God's word, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. If God calls, he will equip, he will supply. There is no doubt about it. Have you ever wondered why the, the, the Israelites were not given a, a week's worth of manna or a month's worth of manna? Why? Could God have given them a week's worth of manna? Yes, he could have. Could he have given them a month's worth of manna? Yes, he could have. He could have done anything. But yet God chose that at the end of that day, they would only collect as much as they needed and then it would be eaten by worms if they collected too much. Think about that. What was God trying to teach? Why did he do that for? To make your life harder? Well, they would have had to collect more often, but that wasn't it. There was a point that they'd have to come to him every day and expect to see the manna there on the thing, on the actual ground. And they would, it would force them to only collect enough for what they ate, which meant they had to trust him for the next moment, for the next day. Trusting God every day. We teach the Bible, and we, we've heard this, God's mercies are new every morning, are they not? Well, it's not just God's mercy. It's God's provision. It's his grace. It's his love. It's his providence. Everything. God's new every morning, every day. God has new things he can give you. If we try to store things up, it don't work which tells me that God is available to me at any and every time. God wants us to depend on him from day to day, from hour to hour, from moment to moment. This is what we call a vibrant and dynamic relationship, where I'm talking with him at all times. So the Bible says cease. Don't cease praying. Pray without ceasing. It's a relationship that teaches us to trust him every day. And then he says, give us our daily bread. 
God doesn't just supply our physical needs, and you know that very well, but he supplies our spiritual needs as well. And we read that passage this morning where Jesus says that he was the bread of life. That bread of life wasn't a physical bread that we eat that feeds our stomach. That bread was the bread that actually feeds our souls, that, that renews our spirit, that gives us life. Therefore, we can come to him every day with physical hunger and physical needs, but we can also come to him with spiritual hunger and spiritual needs. Which needs to be fed every day? You see, as you need to eat every day, you need to be spiritually fed every day. And if you don't eat for a while, you will begin to starve spiritually. So the Bible says we had to come to him every day. When a person comes to Christ, he can get his fill of that bread, that spiritual bread that gives him life. It will feed your soul and will give you the water to quench your thirsty spirit. So let us close up. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. There is a benefit, Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. There is a benefit to having such a wonderful, powerful, loving Father in heaven that we can come to at all, at all times, who is accessible at all times. And it says here, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask of him? That's a rhetorical question. Because if we are evil and we know how to give good things, how much more will God give good things? How much more love does he have for us and we even have for our children and our loved ones? The Bible teaches something very important here, though, that we come to God in prayer. It's the ones, who, the ones who pray, who seek, who knock are the ones who get. If you don't come to God in prayer, you don't get. But God wants to lavish his blessings upon you. He wants to give you. That's his desire if we would come to him in prayer. There is a key, though. There is a key to open up those gates of blessing for us. And it's something very simple. Look at verse 10 of Matthew 6. It says, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. What's the key to receiving God's riches and blessing? Well, it's simply this, that you put him first. Going back to square one again. We put him first. We put his kingdom first. And in Matthew 6, 31, it says, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. There's your key to a blessed life. There's your key when... 
to, to actually help keep things in perspective. When you seek his kingdom first, then whatever you ask will be given because you're seeking it in that context. James gives us a warning. I'll close up, I'll close up with this though. James warns us in chapter 4, and I won't necessarily read it out because we've gone over time, because he says that when's come wars and fightings among you, and you know, isn't it because of the lusts in your members? You ask, you lust and you, and, and you have not, you kill and you desire to have, you cannot obtain, you fight in war and you have not because you ask not. You ask and you receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. And it's because people are too friendly with this world. It's because people who come to God need to understand that to be friends with the world is enmity with God. The solution to that is to put his kingdom first. To put him first. Everything in our lives should be in context of his kingdom and him. So I want you to leave today understanding that when you come to God in prayer, whatever it is you ask him, whether it's bread or whether it's a job or whether it's whatever it is, the health of your child, whatever it is, God can give it to you. But always ask it in terms of him. Because he wants to glorify himself. And he wants to glorify himself through you. And he will. He'll glorify himself, unfortunately, through the unsaved as well. And through the unsaved. Because even throwing people into hell will glorify him. Our mission is a hard one. When we pray, we need to pray fervently and with, and with the right spirit. We need to be praying to him, putting him first in everything. We need to remember, as, a, as the scripture says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth my life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies my mouth with good things. Let's remember that he satisfies our mouth with good things. And let's put him first in everything. God bless you. Thank you. Come on.